Welcome to the Stuttgart Missional Community Church Sermon Podcast. SMCC is a multicultural church serving the English-speaking community in Stuttgart, Germany. For more information or to contact us, visit us on the web at smcchurch.net. That's smcchurch.net. I think it's been a really positive thing for our church thus far going through the Bible together seeing how all of the Old Testament is a foreshadowing of what is to happen in the New Testament, and how Jesus is really uh, the fulfillment of the law and how we are set free. We've learned about that the last couple of weeks. We've talked a lot about idols in the last few weeks as well, and today we're going to talk about basically how do we do... We've talked a lot about idols and how they have a foothold sometimes in our lives, but today we're going to learn how to be offensive and how to attack and get rid of those idols that creep into our lives and inhibit our walk with the Lord. Before we dig into God's Word today and to the sermon, I'd just like to open up in a word of prayer if you would join with me. Lord, we thank you today for your Word, for your Word is life. It is a light unto our path, Lord God, and we pray in Jesus' name that you would lead us and guide us through your Word, that, God, it would speak life into each and every one of us. And, God, I pray for open hearts and open minds as you speak sometimes difficult things, Lord, into our lives. We pray, God, that we would receive those things and God, apply them. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So hopefully you're already to 2 Chronicles chapter 34. It should be pretty easy to follow along in your Bibles as we go through each week and sermon. Usually we're following along as the Bible's written, but sometimes we jump around because we're going through the Bible chronologically. Uh, but today we are back in Chronicles going through the Kings, uh, and we're going to be talking about Josiah today. Um, a good king. Now, before him were some bad kings. But before we get into all of that, I want to... How many of you know who Alexander Fleming is? Raise your hand. Okay. Alexander Fleming is the guy who discovered penicillin. Okay. And uh, he was experimenting with bacteria that caused staph infections. And uh, during his study, he accidentally discovered penicillin because he had a Petri dish dish with staff in it, and he left it uncovered, and it became contaminated with mold. And the bacteria, the staph infection, grew all around on the Petri dish except where the mold was. And this is his accidental discovery of penicillin, which would later be mass-produced for use in World War II. It's interesting that it actually didn't start, uh, it wasn't in mass production until the, after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. You think about that. That's not all that long ago. We didn't have penicillin in World War I. We didn't have penicillin during you know, the Civil War. We didn't have penicillin during a lot of really tough combat situations, and infections would sit in, and a lot, a lot of soldiers would die as a result, not of their injuries, but of the infection that would come after. And this guy really changed uh, how, how we treat infection. It's mold. Penicillin is mold. That's weird, right? And penicillin is still saving people. Of course, we know that it's not, it's, it, it cannot save everyone, and that no matter what happens, one day, each one of us, our bodies will fail, no matter how great modern medicine is. Our bodies will fail, and we'll, we'll die, and we'll either go to heaven or we'll go to hell. And we know that true salvation, true healing can only come from God. Through 
repentance. And today we're going to talk a lot about repentance because what repentance is, is confusing to a lot of people. But true repentance includes genuine sorrow for our sin, turning away from that sin and toward Jesus. That's very, very important. It's not enough just to turn away from sin, but we turn toward Jesus and we live a life that reflects lasting change and transformation. Now, today we're going to talk about King Josiah. When he came face to face with the holiness of God, revealed through the accidental discovery of his word, God's word was lost for a time. He repented and he led his people to do the same. And after his repentance, he restored worship in the temple of the Lord after repairing it. Josiah found his purpose. This key of discovering purpose is important for each one of us as well. And it's through the darkness of repentance that we find what living the light is really about. It's through repentance that we turn away from our sin, we turn towards Christ, and we are able to live in the light. Today we're going to read three segments of chapter 34. We're going to start in verses 1 through 7, and we're going to move through 8 through 11, and then we'll finish up. First, verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. Eight years old, right? No Legos. He is king, okay? And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and he walked in the ways of his David, his father. Of course, David is not his father. That is the that is the, the example he is of the line of David, but his father was actually an evil king named Manasseh, a very evil king. And while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David, his father. And in the 12th year, excuse me, I, I think I skipped verse three, for in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David, his father. And in the 12th year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places of the Asherim and the carved images, and the metal things. Verse 4, And he chopped down the altars of the Baals in his presence. And he cut down the incense altars that stood above them. And he broke into pieces the Asherim, and the carved and metal images, and made dust of them, and scattered it over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. Verse 5, He also burned the bones of the priests on their altars, and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem, and the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, and as far as the Naphtali, and the ruins all around. He broke down the altars and beat the Asherim into the imi- and, and the images into powder and cut down all the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel. Then he returned to Jerusalem. As we see in King Josiah's life, the first thing that we must do with idols is destroy them. We must destroy the idols in our lives. And Josiah methodically went about destroying the idols. He didn't just pray a prayer and ask God to destroy the idols. He developed a plan. He destroyed the idols in his life. He tore down the altars of Baal. He ripped apart the Asherah poles. He executed the priests to these false gods and defiled their altars. He did so throughout Judah and the territory of Israel. It's not enough just to denounce our idols as evil and demotic. We must destroy them. We must be active in putting them to death. What do we do with idols? Destroy them. That's what we do, right? We don't worship at their feet. We destroy them. 
It's also interesting, as we read through the text, that Josiah not only attacked the idols in his own life, but those for whom God had made him responsible. He took it upon himself to destroy the idols that were being worshipped throughout Judah and Israel. He did it. He didn't, the people weren't asking him to do it, but he had responsibility for them, and he wasn't going to allow them to worship idols. Church, I think there's an important lesson in this. For those of us whom we are either we're married or we have children, and there's people that we are responsible for or to, this is, this is a precedent for us, that we are to destroy the idols that would not only affect us, but affect our children and affect our homes, and that maybe even work their way into our churches, right? We have to be on guard and fight those idols. I'm sorry, I have to just pause for a second. I see Jahan back there. Oh, hey, <laughs> Jeff and Jahan are here. Hey, guys. Sorry. I, they're not idols. <laughs> they're members of our church who are now stationed in, near Moscow, right? And now they're back visiting. So welcome back, you guys. So good to see you guys. Idolatry, it just can't be given a foothold. It can't be given a foothold in our hearts, in our homes, or our church. And usually that's the way it goes. It starts in our hearts, then it gets in our homes, and then it gets into our church. Why do we have a problem fighting idols in our families? You know, Why do we have a problem getting our children from worshiping their phones or the computer or whatever? Maybe it's because we don't want to put it to death in our own lives. right? Maybe it's because that idol has a foothold in our hearts, and we don't want to we kind of like that. We like that idol. And so putting it to death in our kids, for in our kids' life, has become impossible because it keeps coming back. Why does it keep coming back? Because it's possible. I'm just saying there's a, there's a chance that it may be an idol in your heart as well. And that foothold just lets it keep creeping, creeping, creeping back into your, to your life. We all know the, the adage, you know, that do as I say, not as I do. It doesn't work. It really doesn't work. It didn't work for you. It's not working for me. It's not working for your kids either. It just doesn't work. You got to be able to live it out. And when we put idols to death, we got to put them to death in our own hearts first, and then attack them in our family's hearts, and then we'll be on guard to keep it outside of our church and everywhere else. The truth is, though, we're too weak. We're too weak to effect lasting change ourselves. The only way to tear down idols is through true repentance. And when I think about repentance, what I think about is a white flag. That's what I think. Raising a white flag, surrendering, surrendering. I cannot do it. I cannot win. The only way to win is to surrender. Surrender your life. Surrender your will. Surrender your being to Jesus Christ. Surrender it to God. Give your life to Jesus. That is the only way to win. Now, this doesn't play well in our setting. Surrender is not in our creed, right? And I don't mean just the military culture, but in Western culture in general, surrender, weakness, is not something that's valued. And we talked about it last week in The Suffering Servant, about how that weakness has turned a lot of people off from who Jesus is. But he came to seek and save that which is lost. And when we can admit our own weakness against sin, our own weakness against idols, only then can we truly have the victory. The only way to tear down those idols is through true repentance. What is true repentance? Number one, it's the recognition of guilt. We must recognize we are guilty before 
the Lord. And once we can recognize and we accept our guilt, then we are in a position to receive mercy, okay? But until then, we're not. We still have pride. We still have arrogance. We still have this foolish idea that somehow we can overcome sin. Tell me, how is that working out for you? How is that working out? Fighting sin in your own strength, fighting sin in your own, but how's that working out for you? I'm guessing not too well. You know why? Because I fought that fight for a long time myself. But when we confess that we are sinners, that we cannot defeat the effects of sin on our, on our own, and we confess our sin before God, and we demonstrate true sorrow for our offense against who? Against him. Because your sin may affect the people sitting around you. It may affect family. It may affect you personally. But it is ultimately an offense against him. And he knows. He knows all of your sin. And to think that you're hiding something from him, it's foolishness. The only way out is to confess it. To confess it. We must turn away from our sinful desires and turn toward Christ. And this is really important too because... Before I became a Christian, I made it my business to fill my life up with things that dishonored God, that dishonored myself, right? Things that my flesh desired, but ultimately meant my death. These things that were in my life, they brought joy for a moment, but then they brought sorrow and grief. And when I turned away from those things, there was an emptiness there for sure, right? There was a big emptiness, and how am I going to spend my days? What am I going to do? Right? And I had to fill up my life with things that would edify, would build me up. I had to turn toward Christ. I had to take steps towards him. I went to discipleship classes. I invested in studying the word. For a season in my life, I didn't own a television because it was a distraction. And I just studied God's word, and I, I just gave everything to knowing Jesus. And I filled my heart up with things that are good. And that, that's important. When we put an idol to death, if we just leave that void and we're not committed towards walking towards Christ, that void will easily be filled by yet another idol, right? We have to fill ourselves up with Christ. And we must determine to live our lives in a transformed way. The Bible says that we are a new creation in Christ Jesus. It doesn't say we're better creations or, you know, Matt 2.0. It says we are new creations. And this is a really important thing for each one of us to embrace, that we must look at our lives and every decision, and we must say, is this, am I living my life, is this decision based on my life in Christ, and am I living in a transformed way? We had a a video teleconferencing meeting with missionaries all over Europe last week, and and, uh, in a kind of a breakout session in that teleconference, we talked about decision making and reacting to things that we may be hearing and uh as a leader as a christian leader as a pastor i've i try i have learned and i try to apply this in every situation that reacting with a gut reaction to something i'm hearing is usually not the right way to go about things because my gut is still influenced my you know my that jerk knee jerk reaction is still influenced by the old mat and if I'm actually going to re- like respond in a transformed way, then I must yield my decision-making to the power of the Holy Spirit residing in me. I can't react in anger or disgust or, or even frustration or impatience. I must take a breath. I, 
I have to think and I have to ask even maybe silently to myself, Holy Spirit, what is this person really saying? How should I react? How can I respond in a transformed way? Because it's important that we are continually looking more and more like Jesus. And this is one thing that people, you know, they don't come to Jesus or they, they reject the Christian faith because they think we're all lemmings. Now, in this room, we have a lot of people in the military. You knew many of you wear the same uniform, but it certainly doesn't mean that you're the same person, does it? All right? And while we're all being transformed, as the Bible says, day by day, glory by glory, and we're looking more and more like Christ, it doesn't mean that you're all the same person, right? But we are all to be walking towards Jesus Christ. We're all to be continuing in our sanctification. We'll talk more about sanctification in a moment. But the Bible says this in 2 Corinthians 3, 16 and 18. But when one, excuse me, 2 Corinthians, yeah, that's what I said. But one turns from the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. For those of us who serve Jesus Christ, we must willfully walk in a transformed way, living out the faith that we, we, we claim to have. And this thing about repentance, it's not just John the Baptist who preached repentance. Jesus preached repentance. Some of his first sermons were about repentance. He says in Matthew 4, 17, from that time Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus preached repentance. Some of his last words were that of repentance. He said that repentance uh, for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, Luke 24, 46. We are to be preaching repentance, and repentance is the key for responding to the grace of the gospel. It is the key for godly living. Martin Luther said repentance should be a lifestyle, not just something we do once. It should be a lifestyle. You sin, repent. Turn away from it. Confess it. Walk towards Jesus. Now, repentance and sharing the gospel is an important thing. And when we share the gospel with people, there are two kinds of people. There are the proud and there are the broken. Okay? To the broken, to those convinced of their own sin, we extend to them the mercy that is in Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins through his blood. To those who are proud, they must be presented with the law. They must be convinced of their own unrighteousness, their own sinfulness. Otherwise, the mercy of Jesus Christ doesn't make any sense. It's not the well who need a doctor. It's the sick. And we know that in sin, we're all sick, no matter how great life is, no matter how rich we are, no matter what rank we are, no matter what position we hold, we are sick apart from Jesus Christ. And he is the only one who can bring the true solution for sin. But a lot of people are walking around their own pride and their own arrogance and their own self-righteousness. And so they must be presented with the law before they can receive the grace. Now, this is a mistake a lot of us make when sharing the gospel because we just want to tell everybody the good news. Hey, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the Savior of the world. But unless people know they need something to be saved from, it doesn't make any sense. So when you're sharing the gospel... When, you're, when the Holy Spirit's working in you, hey, you really need to talk to this person. I want you to tell this person about Jesus. 
you really got to figure out where this person is spiritually. Are they broken or are they proud? If they're proud, they need the law. If they're broken, they need the mercy of Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God's already done the work in them. Repentance means, secondly, number one, it means destroying idols. Secondly, it means resuming worship. Go back to the Bible with me in verse 8 of chapter 34 of 2 Chronicles. Now, in the 18th year of his reign, when he had cleansed the land and the house, he sent Shaphan, excuse me, the son of Aziliah. These names are probably all mispronounced. I'm sorry. And Messiah, the governor of the city, and Joah, the son of Joaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. Verse 9, they came to Hilkiah, the high priest, and gave him the money that had been brought into the house of God, which the Levites, the keepers of the threshold, had collected from Manasseh and Ephraim and all the remnant of Israel from Judah and Benjamin and from the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And they gave it back to the workmen who were working in the house of the Lord, and the workmen who were working in the house of the Lord gave it for the repairing and the restoring of the house. They gave it to the carpenters and to the builders to buy quarried stone and timber for binders and beams for the buildings that the kings of Judah had let go to ruin. The kings that preceded Josiah had let the temple of the Lord fall apart, fall into complete disrepair. Manasseh, his father, had even set up idols in the temple of the Lord. Not, not golden calves, but idols, objects of worship that, that didn't belong there and desecrated the temple. And Josiah is restoring it. Right now, I think, is California struggling through another wildfire epidemic right now? And you see the, you can see the air, airborne images of the wildfire and you see how it's just spreading. But those who are in close proximity, they don't, need, they don't need the airborne images. You don't have to advertise a wildfire. You can see it coming. It lights up the night. You can see where it's been because everything behind a wildfire is completely black and burnt. I've, I've never seen anything like it. When I was stationed in California, uh, we went up to Lake Tahoe once, and wildfire had hit much of, of that area, and, I mean, just total blackness, just total burnt to nothing behind it. You can see where the fire has been, but while it's raging, you can feel its heat. You can feel its heat from a long ways off. You can sense its energy and its smoke. Here, Josiah had really become a wildfire. He had experienced repentance and the love of God, and this fueled his passion for God's glory. And his, that his experience had overflowed to others. Many of you are here today because a contagious Christian either invited you to church or invited you to receive Jesus. Somebody who just would not shut up about Jesus Christ. Has anybody ever met that person? All right, that was my experience. This guy would never stop talking about Jesus despite my best efforts to dissuade him. He would constantly invite me to church, constantly tell me about Jesus. He was a contagious Christian. And, and that is the method by which Christianity took over the world in less than 500 years after the death of Jesus Christ. This is, I mean, okay, among other things, but it's the word of mouth ministering one house to another, sharing about Jesus. And this is truly the methodology of our church. This is our method of evangelism. We, you know, Stacy and I, though I'm a veteran, I don't have access to the post without being signed on by one of you. Many of you know this. But it, it doesn't matter. It's not my job to win our community for Jesus. That's all of our jobs. 
And while a lot of churches today, you, you have been relegated as church members, your, your part to play in winning people to Christ has been inviting them to church. You invite them to church and the pastor will give a message and then he'll have them all raise their hands and bow their heads and close their eyes and maybe by grace they'll get saved, right? And it, it does work, okay? There are people being saved that way. I don't believe it's the most effective way. I don't believe it's the biblical model. The biblical model is Christians going into their place of business, going into where they live their lives and sharing the light of Jesus that resides in them winning their communities to Jesus Christ, winning their cubicles to Jesus Christ, winning their colleagues to Jesus Christ, their fellow students to Jesus Christ. This is the method by which the gospel rapidly spread throughout the world after Jesus' death. This is the method by which we are to lead people to Christ. It's not my job to lead people to Christ. It's our job to lead people to Christ. We need to get ourselves in a position with Jesus that we are com comfortable doing that, leading someone else. I'm telling you, you know what's not contagious? Somebody who doesn't have it, right? Somebody who doesn't have a wildfire. Somebody who doesn't have that burning in their hearts. It's not very contagious. It's pretty boring. But somebody who's on fire for God can't help but draw people. I mean, the band is changing for sure, but there was a moment when this entire band was all soccer people. All, the whole band was Sakir. Why? Because there was one guy in Sakir who invited every single person he knew to be part of our band and part of our church. And uh, we're very grateful for the transition and the, the new people stepping into the band. But that's just an illustration of that contagious kind of Christianity. When our church moved into this building, we moved with just a few families. But one family, invited by that guy that was on the band, invited another guy who... It wasn't in the band, but had a Bible study going. He told his entire Bible study about it, and that very week we had over 15 new families, and that one week, the day we launched our new, you know, moving in here, it's contagious Christianity. It's a wildfire, and you can sense it. You can feel it. There's something going on in that person's life. The early Christians were contagious, their gospel spread like wildfire. They had tasted and know God's love and forgiveness. And the Bible says in Acts chapter 2, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. We're not growing a church. We're growing the kingdom. If they go to Trinity, fine. They go to IBC, fine. Wherever they can worship the Lord, that's fine with me. We're not growing a church. We're growing the kingdom of God. When it's not about us, it's not about SMCC, it's not about me, it's not about you, it's about him. It's about people being spared from the wrath of God that will be poured out on them if they stand in their own righteousness before the throne of judgment. You and I both know our guilt. We know we're guilty. Do you really want to stand before the Lord of glory in your own righteousness? No. But when our hearts burn with God's love, others will see and take note. If you have a stale, boring, lukewarm Christianity, you're not going to win anybody. That's for sure. No, I'm not drawn to that. Right? I'm not drawn to that. Nobody's drawn to that. And maybe your faith was, maybe you were on fire. Maybe you burned like a wildfire, but somehow, some way, that fire has been maybe not completely extinguished, but it's definitely not burning as bright as it once did. Why? What has come into your life 
that has put that light that God has put in your heart under a basket? What is, what is dimming it? What is keeping it from shining as brightly as it was? My encouragement to you today is that you would get before the Lord and that you would be broken before him and ask him to pour that fire out once again. That you would burn brighter than you have ever burned in your entire life for him. And that it would be contagious. Lastly, repentance means obeying God's word. We're talking about a lot of things that are a key part of Christianity, but you don't hear a whole lot about. Number one, repentance. Number two, obedience. Doing what God says. Verse 14 of chapter 34 says this, While they were bringing out the money that had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hekiah the priest found the book of the law, the, of the of the Lord given through Moses, verse fifteen. Then Helkiah answered and said to Shaphan the secretary, "I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord." And Helkiah gave the book to Shaphan. Verse nineteen. And when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Helkiah, Achim the son of Shaphan, Abdin the son of Micah. Shaphan, the secretary, and Isaiah, the king's servant, saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and in Judah concerning the words of the book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out because of our fathers, because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. Now, this is pretty amazing to me that Josiah did everything he did up until this point without even having the word of the Lord. He is just responding to what is in his heart, right? There's an anointing upon the king of Israel. There's an anointing upon him. And he's just responding to the inner witness of his heart to do what he's done so far. The word had been lost. This is how far Israel had fallen, that the word of God had literally fallen between the cracks. Literally. And now it's discovered. And though Josiah had done a ton to restore holiness to his kingdom... When he is read the book of the law, he still tears his clothes in mourning because he realizes there are still many, many, many more ways that that the law has been violated. See, where the word of God is hidden or ignored, evil moves in. Where the word of God is lost, where the word of God is not held in high esteem, evil and lies move in. But where there's a high regard for God's word, the lies and evil of our enemy are exposed. How do we know what's a lie? We know something's a lie because we understand the truth, amen? And so a great understanding of God's word, of the person of God, the character of God is essential for us to be able to discern in this world what is a lie and what is truth. I've talked about this a lot, and it's kind of a hobby horse of mine, biblical literacy, understanding and knowing the Word of God. As a matter of fact, it's such a passion of mine, it has driven this entire Bible study that I've committed us to for the next three years. Because in your time here, no matter how short or how long or how long, you know, you're part of our church, my goal is that you will have an understanding of God's Word like you've never known before, that you might go out from this place and your next assignment be able to discern truth from lie. And Christians, I want to tell you, this is an art that has been lost. Why? Because largely God's word has fell between the cracks. It's not preached in every pulpit, which is hard to believe. It's not not held in high esteem. 
Pastors are as quick to quote Christian books as they are to quote the book. We have to have an understanding of God's word if we're going dis- to discern what is a lie and what is truth in our culture today because there's a lot of lies being, dis- under- being disguised as Christian truth. I think this reason that, you know, the, the Bible is just so powerful in this capacity to distinguish lies from truth, it's a reason that oppressive regimes all over the world and have throughout history banned the Bible and executed those who would distribute it. Because it's the Bible that brings the lies of the enemy to light. And so, of course, they don't want the Bible in these countries. Of course, they don't want the Bibles in these oppressive regimes. Because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. When there's truth, there's freedom. I pray that the Word of God would never fall between the cracks in our lives. That it always be a priority. That the character of God that is revealed in God's Word would be a passion of ours. You just get to know God through His Word. It's how He's revealed Himself to us. There's power in the Word. And Josiah recognizes this. And Jesus is the source of power behind God's word. It's the source that created Josiah, that created the world we live in. Jesus, the word of God, John tells us, put on skin. And he became man who obeyed God's law perfectly so he could die in the place of us and save us from our sins because we have, a, we have failed to obey God's law. This is grace, God's unmerited favor towards us, and it's available to every single person who would repent and believe on Jesus Christ for their salvation. There's nothing, there's no sin too great, there's no sin too small, there's nothing separating you from God. If you would just repent and turn away from your sin and turn towards God, you will receive grace. It's a promise we have in Scripture, but you have to do it with your whole heart, right? And this is kind of the thing where we miss it a little bit. We miss it. It's complete surrender to Christ. And we think in this complete surrender that we're going to be miserable, right? Because we love our idols, man. We love them. Whatever we've made an idol over the history of our lives, we, its power over us is demonstrated in our fear of losing it. Well, I, man, if I'm, if, I'm a, if I'm one of those all-out Bible-thumping Christians, I'm really going to have to, man, I know things are going to have to change in my life. Here's the thing, the illusion that the enemy wants you to believe, that partly turning towards God is enough. It's not. It's not. It's all in. It's all or nothing. The only way to win is to change sides. <laughs> Do you get it? Change the team that you're playing on completely. Give your life over to Christ. There, there is grace, there is mercy for those who repent and believe. Lastly, we are called to obey. We're called to live transformed lives. We don't do it because we're trying to earn our way to heaven. We do it because we have placed our complete trust in God. And complete trust means whatever is in his word is for our benefit. We understand that, we accept that, and we live according to his word because we believe God is not trying to cheat us or hold something back from us, but that his best is revealed in his word. 
Don't fall into the same trap that Adam and Eve fell, fell into, believing that God was withholding something from them. That was the true lie of the enemy, that God was withholding something from them. But God was actually looking out for their well-being. God is not withholding things from you, joy or peace or strength. I want to tell you that in the years I didn't serve the Lord, nothing has compared to serving Jesus, right? You think you're you think you're happy, you think you're filling, you're filling your life with carnal pleasures, and you think that's happiness, you think that's joy. Nothing compares to the freedom of being saved, being made right with God through the blood of Jesus. Nothing. There is a peace that is beyond understanding, a rightness with God that cannot be explained. I remember a few years ago, there was a lot of publicity and press about George's, George Bush II's conversion, George W. Bush, his conversion. And he's being interviewed about what it means to be saved. And he's like, are you saved? Uh, George, that's George Bush's response. You know, you know what's it, what was it like to be saved? And George Bush responded, well, are you saved? And the guy said, well, no, you know, and he's, I can't explain it to you. I can't explain it to you, what that feeling is. And those of you in the room who know the feeling, you know, but those of you who don't can't even fathom it. It, I, I don't, and I'm not saying that like an elitist. I'm just saying that's, that gift is for every single person. But I want to assure you, I want to promise you that it's better than anything you've tasted on the earth. This freedom that we have in Jesus Christ, this peace of God that goes beyond understanding, there's nothing beyond it. This freedom from guilt, this deliverance from sin, this righteousness in the eyes of God. You see, if I were to die today, if I was to die before I even finish this sermon, I know I'm going to be standing before the Lord. And that puts fear in our hearts, right? Like, what's it mean to stand before the Lord? But I also know that I won't be standing before the Lord in my own righteousness. I won't be standing before the Lord giving defense for myself, but I have an intercessor. I have a king who has shed his blood for me, who will be offering my defense through his blood. And that I will stand in righteousness before God, not because of what I have done, because I'm a sinner. And my flesh, though I combat it every single day, sometimes wins that fight. It's not going to win the war, but sometimes it wins the fights. And I won't be standing before God in my own righteousness, but I'll be standing in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. His son, who died the perfect, lived the perfect life and died the death that I deserved. That, there's peace in that. If God were to take me home tomorrow, I would miss my wife, but I am also assured that I'll see her again. Right, And she will miss me but she will have that peace as well. The hardest funeral to go to, the hardest thing to go through is the death of a loved one who didn't know Jesus Christ. There, I, to be honest with you, there's not much mourning for me when I, I go to a funeral or I, 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 am, you know, I'm in, I go to a wake of someone who died in Christ because their joy is greater than any joy that I've even experienced on this earth in Jesus Christ, right? Their joy is made complete and their reunification with Jesus, right? I mean, that's awesome. And so, you know, we mourn because we won't see them, but they're in the presence of the Lord. In this passage of Scripture today, and again, I encourage you to continue with us in our daily devotions, filling in all these blanks. But in today's passage, we see a small speck of history played out in front of us. King Josiah was a great reformer. There's a lot of kids named Josiah right? There's not a lot of kids named Manasseh. There's not a lot of kids named Ahab. We name our kids after the righteous kings, right? The kings who brought 
there's even kids named Hezekiah, right? Even though it's mostly in Mennonite circles, right? And uh, Amish circles. But Hezekiah is a good name, good king. Josiah, good king. Great reformer, gifted leader. But our takeaway is not leadership. Our takeaway is not what it means to be king. Our takeaway is the power of repentance. Radical repentance. What can happen in your life through radical repentance? What can happen in your family's life through radical repentance? What can happen in your community through radical repentance? Repentance for salvation is a one-time act. That's true. But as Martin Luther said, repentance should be the state, the status of our lives. We should be repenting of our sin constantly, turning towards Christ, demonstrating sorrow for our sin, and walking towards Jesus Christ every single day. Josiah attempted to restore the temple, but eventually the temple still crumbled. There's only one retaining wall of that temple still existing today. But we have a greater temple through the blood of Jesus Christ, a temple that will never be torn down, a temple that will never be broken. And because God longs to dwell with his people, he came to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Through faith, he has sealed us with his spirit. And now we, as we learned a couple of weeks ago, are God's temple, and nothing can separate us from his love. Don't you just love Jordan? That dude is... How many of you know he's contagious, amen? (laughs) This gospel story of relentless love is what draws us back into repentance and faithful living again and again and again. Now this morning, maybe the Spirit of God has quickened your spirit and there's something that's coming to the forefront of your mind that you need to repent of. The solution to that guilt that you may be feeling or that conviction of the Holy Spirit that you might be feeling is not to wallow in it, but to confess it, to repent and turn towards Jesus. Today, this morning, you have an opportunity to turn away from your sin and turn towards Christ, and it's a decision you make right in your own seat. No matter, no amount of how eyes closed and heads bowed are going to help you make that decision. I believe you've already made that decision in your heart this moment. Am I going to turn away from sin and turn towards Christ or not? And every opportunity that you have to hear a message like this, you're, having, you're really making a life and death choice here. And I don't want to overstate my hand or use the pulpit to bully you, but what I'm saying is this is a golden opportunity. When I came to know Jesus finally, after many, many opportunities of coming to know Jesus, I was very, very appreciative of all the opportunities that I had, but though I, that I had denied, Right? that I've turned my back, and I actually went to many of these people and apologized to them and said, you know, I want you to know, I, want, I wanted to tell them, like, what they did was not in vain, that I had become a Christian, that I had decided to serve Jesus and thank them for sharing Jesus with me, those, those people that I could still say thank you to. Today, this moment, you have an opportunity to put an idol to death or idols to death. Repent and turn towards Jesus. I want to tell you, you'll never look back. You'll never look back. Thank you for listening to the SMCC Sermon Podcast. Be sure to visit us on the web at smcchurch.net. That's smcchurch.net.